Hello and welcome to Silicon Valley Founders Secrets. My name is Mahama Nyankamau. And my name is Christina Ju Weaver. Every week, we deconstruct the lives of extraordinary founders from Silicon Valley and highlight the influences, adversity, and people that helped shape them. Our hope is that they, humanity, and courage will inspire you to make a bigger impact wherever you are in the world. Enjoy the show. Our guest today is Dr. David Kruger, MD. Dr. Kruger is an executive mentor coach and CEO of Mentor Park, an executive coaching, training, and wellness firm. His work integrates psychology and neuroscience with strategic coaching to help executives and professionals write the next chapter of their life or business stories. Dr. Kruger is Dean of Curriculum for Coach Training Alliance. He has been quoted in Money, Fortune, Forbes, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. Dr. Kruger formerly practiced and taught psychiatry and psychoanalysis and was clinical professor of psychiatry. He was listed in the best doctors in America annually for seven years and was also listed in Consumer Research Council of America's top psychiatrists. He founded and served as CEO for two healthcare corporations, co-founded a third startup that went from venture capital to merger acquisition, and founded Houston Gathering of Angels, an angel investment group. His book, The Secret Language of Money, is a business bestseller translated into 10 languages. His 2019 book releases are Engaging the Ineffable, Toward Mindfulness and Meaning. Your New Money Story, The Beliefs, Behaviors, and Brain Science to Rewire for Wealth. To learn more about Dr. David Kruger, please visit www.mentorpath.com. Enjoy the interview. Hello, Dave. Uh, this is Mahama with uh, Christina. How's your morning today? It's great. It's a privilege to be with you. Thanks for this opportunity to have a conversation. What would you describe as your perfect day? What would you be doing and who would you be with? I'll, I'll look at that personally and professionally. Personally, uh, with my grandkids, my four granddaughters in Boston, we all go to a mall and we shop for their Christmas presents. My five grandkids in Houston, we go to my ranch for Christmas. And the goal is really to be immersed in play with them, and only occasionally they pause and look around, and they're reminded that, oh, yeah, you're an adult. <laughs> uh, pro- professionally, um, I spend a month, five weeks actually, in New Orleans writing in an old 300-year-old Creole house and courtyard that I would jog when I was in medical school there and see behind the the wrought iron fence, the beautiful courtyards, wonder what it was like back there, and now I'm privileged to be able to spend uh, a month, more than a month there each year, just immersed in writing. Wow, that, that, that's fascinating. I definitely love your books. We actually have one of them right in front of us, the, uh, your new money story book. Awesome. What is your one superpower, and how would you describe it to others? Well, that's a good question. I think 
everybody should know that, but it's also hardest to describe it myself. I, I would say the the um, the developed ability to synthesize and integrate concepts from diverse fields and disciplines to meaningfully apply and simply convey. For example, applying the mind and brain sciences from psychology and neuroscience to conversational intelligence and appreciative inquiry to mentor coaching conversations. Oh, that, that, that's very powerful. And I hear you when you say that, talk about your experience from psychiatry and neuroscience and coaching impacting everything that you're doing right now. Can you say a little bit more about how you're using that to help other people? Well, so much of the ways we go about addressing change are contrary to how the mind and the brain work. So if we know more about the mind and brain sciences, it makes it easier, more effective, and more permanent to facilitate change and to, in that process, achieve and sustain both peak performance and success. So it's a very informative way to proceed. It informs what I do. It doesn't direct it. I mean, I have normal sounding conversations, not, <laughs> not as a <laughs> former clinical professor. I mean, I, I hope I sound normal in conversations as, as, we've had, as we've had conversations before. Uh, so it, it just informs uh, approaches. That That is so powerful. So one of the things that I have been curious about it's about you as a person, and what what experiences are you willing to share with us that you would say have helped shape you into the person that you are today? Well, that's a good question. Uh, growing up on a farm, from about age six, I fed cattle twice a day, seven days a week, because that's what you did. They had to eat. When I began college and had early morning classes, I heard people around me sort of grinching about the early hours, complaining about doing that. And I recognized fairly quickly my gratitude that I didn't waste energy in complaining or being upset. I just did what I did. It was simple. I never thought I'd be grateful for those early mornings on the farm before the sun was up. My dad taught me passion for work by his love of farming. I'm, I'm told that in World War II, when his buddies had pictures of of pin-up women in their lockers, he had a picture of his red tractor. <laughs> he he, <laughs> he taught romantic. me in very simple ways the, the soul of the soil and the rhythm of the seasons. Wow. Yeah, that reminds me of growing up myself in uh, Ghana on the farm. That, that's very interesting. Ah, I didn't know you were a farm boy, too. That's interesting. <laughs> yes, man. That's... Wow. <laughs> Is farm from Texas? Like... Yes, exactly. Yeah. Wow. That, that that is so cool. So you talked about your dad, and I'm just curious how he was a mentor to you, and which other mentors you've had that have impacted you. After my dad, it was my favorite athletic coach. He kept saying, "Your mind is the most powerful thing in the world." And I worked with him for four years. It led to championships. I dedicated my first training curriculum for New Life Story Wellness coaches to him. Recently, in the addendum to a curriculum and training material for the mind and brain science of peak performance under pressure, the addendum is a letter to him reflecting how important he was to me. 
It's shaped initially going into psychiatry and psychoanalysis and then later into mentor, into mentor coaching. And, and we still have each other on speed dial. Wow, that, that, that is, that is so amazing that when you find a good mentor, you hold on to them because Absolutely, it's a yeah. lifelong journey, isn't it? Wow. Awesome. So we've talked about your mentors. Now, looking back through the span of your life and career, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Well, after decades of, of helping many thousands of people earlier in psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, in the last dozen years in mentor coaching, I still can do no better than my coach. Your mind is the most powerful thing in the world. Wow. Now, Dave, you're a very accomplished person, and I was just wondering, like, what are the daily habits you have developed to keep yourself effective and sane? Whenever you want to develop a good habit or change a habit, uh, focus on the system and not the goal. So my, my system is to schedule the important activities specifically through the day, the week, and then in a broader perspective, the month and the year, um, to respect your biorhythms. For example, my creative time coming from the farm days is early in the morning. So from six to nine, I don't turn on my telephone. I don't go to my computer. That's my time, my creative time and doing various things when I get up, such as uh, yoga, stretching, watching the news, to writing and creating uh, material for, for, that, uh, for that more creative period of the time. Specific times to work with individuals in mentor coaching uh, clients. Uh, I, I do that by telephone. Other specific time for training. At 2 o'clock every day, I'm at the gym uh, working. So uh, I cluster things that require a change of state of mind. In other words, instead of, say, accepting calls through the day, I cluster all of those calls to one period of time. I cluster errands to one period of time. Email and, and those kinds of things to one period of time. Because it, you know, it's been said that it takes as much energy to turn on a TV than it does to run it for the next three to four hours. Same with our states of mind. Whenever we're doing something, immersed in something, and there's an interruption, it takes energy to interrupt and refocus on the new thing and then to get back to what you were doing. So it's triple work. So those kinds of things can be clustered to be more efficient. Uh, it, it's much like uh, intellectual or artistic or athletic performance to get in a performance zone. And to sustain that, it's much easier to do it when you really appreciate the structure and the framework of it to create a system to do it. So that's that's how, in a broad view, I think about it. Wow, uh, I heard what you said. I think it's amazing. Especially with this age, I think we have even more interruptions, such Absolutely. as like Facebook, you know, you got a friend calling, texting you. How you handle it with, you know, like all the interruptions, you know, nowadays with all the you know, social media, you know, um, different, different interruption at different time. Do you, how you communicate with, you know, some of the people that, who may be calling you and texting you? <laughs> this is kind of relevant to some of the teenagers or, you know, young people these days. Well, 
first, uh, my cell phone is my private number, and I don't do anything business, so I don't do texts with that. For anything on the Internet, I have a specific time for returning calls. It's always on voicemail, and I'll return calls at a specific, so there aren't any interruptions. Uh, for example, I work in my, uh, I, I work now in a home office. Uh, my, <laughs> my, my wife is at uh, a home we have in Bryan uh, College Station where she's in her gun lab with a PhD program, so during the week she's not here, so I've disconnected the doorbell. I have people who come to do the pool or come at specific times that there's no interruption with anything. So I'm not interrupted. That's awesome. What are the suggestions you give to um, the audience if they feel interrupted so to effectively staff the system? Well, one, one principle is whatever you think and feel and experience or what you create each moment, to be interrupted, you have to have your own participation. Mm -hmm. So another way of saying that is whatever you experience, you either create or you agree to. So mm -hmm. if you're agreeing to something that you don't want, then look at changing the system. Uh, let me give you an example. I worked with a, a professional. Uh, everything is confidential and privileged, so I'm going to uh, kind of blur the, the specifics here. I worked with a professional who had a firm that he was looking to take regional and then national, and as we began working in executive mentor coaching, we both realized that he had an attention problem, uh, attention challenge, and what his day looked like is that there were all kinds of partners who would come by for curbside consults, his system interrupting with calls. What he did best, and, and back to mom's question about what do you do absolutely best? What's your sweet spot? It was when he was totally focused on the computer and immersed in that state of mind, in that performance zone, without interruption. So we structured his day so that it would be enhancing of that, so that his assistant kept all calls to 4 to 4.45 in the afternoon. No interruptions for curbside consoles. Those were all scheduled for a specific 30-minute time, and everything was structured, and he soared and then moved to an, a, a national presence in a much, much shorter period of time. I mean, that's just a little bit of what we did, but that, that's to answer your question about, you know, how, how do you structure, how do you attend to optimizing performance? And, and really minimizing stress in the process because when it's structured, it's not stressful. Oh, that's amazing. I love the example you just shared with us and uh, you know, help them to restructure the system. Um, another question I would like to ask is, what motivates you to start a mental path? Well, that's a, that's a, a, a great question. My transition from practicing and teaching psychiatry and psychoanalysis to mentor coaching was twofold, to continue working with individuals in the newer field of, of over a dozen years ago of professional coaching and to develop training and materials for 
coaches and for organizations. I, I wanted, for example, to help corporations develop internal mentoring programs informed by psychology, neuroscience, and social and conversational intelligence, and to train other coaches to become licensed and specially certified as well as and financial coaches. So I have coaching, I have coaches using my training and materials on five continents now, but mostly the, the heart of what I do is work with individuals and individual mentor coaching to uh, achieve and sustain peak performance. Wow, that's a mate, that's a huge impact. What are the new projects you've been working on? I began um, in <laughs> in New Orleans um, working uh, last September a year ago, working on a um, uh, a, a new application uh, to apply psychology and neuroscience to peak performance. In in the last very few years, there's been a great deal of well-researched uh, work to enhance performance in business, works, uh, in the arts. And, you know, for example, practice does not make perfect, it, it makes permanent. It, it's hardwired in the brain, so it's imperative to do it right. So, look at ways to manage stress and enhance peak performance. Uh, I'm developing a, a training curriculum and a book, the, the first sort of offer, and, and to do a, an initial overview as a webinar series I have on my, uh, uh, on my website. Uh, the, 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 it's, it's called Stress Mastery and Peak Performance, the Neuroscience of Optimum Performance. And it's, it's, uh, the, the vehicle I'm using for this is the Neural Mentor Institute for Peak Performance. Wow, that, 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 that's, that's, that's so amazing. I think especially those in Silicon Valley who are all in excellence would definitely benefit from understanding the science and the applications of this, this new project. So we are looking forward to having it and hopefully you let us know when it's out so that we can, we can, we can take this report. Well, what determines what I do is what I most want to learn about. If, you know, whatever next book I'm writing, it's what I most want to learn about. Same with the blog, same with the white paper. So that, that webinar that's available, you can see it on the home page of my website, is just the introduction to this. There's also, uh, there's also a free webinar that's front and center on my website, mentorpath.com, on master states of mind. And that's only a single 30, 35 minute webinar, but I think it's, it's a useful introduction to anything that follows because mastering states of mind is so crucial to really develop expertise and then both to practice and to perform. So it, it's a useful introduction and I'll be interested if anybody has any questions about it. There's a way to contact me, send me an email and I'll, uh, send back a response. That's awesome. I actually have uh, listened to that webinar a few times, and it's very powerful. I always find myself going back to it when I want to remind myself about the importance of uh, states of mind. That's something that I've learned from you that I find very useful. Thank you. So, Dave, I am inspired by the plethora of things that you've done. And one of the things that I keep coming back to is what are some lessons that you've learned serving as CEO of multiple companies, including Mentor Park, 
that you can share with our audience, especially the uh, young founders who are looking to expand their company? A couple of parts of that. One is that we don't know what we don't know. And, and to know to ask is half the answer. Our blind spots are sometimes the mistakes we make without even realizing it. And one of the things that I'm very aware of in coaching is the neuroscience research that 90 to 95% of our operating system is unconscious. So the biases, intention, uh, inattention blindness, limits of visualizing from our own system are inherent, but they can be catalyzed by a growth mindset by colleagues, by a mentor coach. So mentor coaching is a collaboration to self-reflect and expand beyond even your own vision to enhance social, emotional, conversational intelligence, to understand our own dynamics and the dynamics of others. So advice would be from that to engage a growth mindset and surround yourself by others of different and complementary expertise who themselves have growth mindsets and are informed and expert in what they do. Collaborate with carefully selected people who know more than you do. Experts in content, culture, coaching, executive function, and interfaces from marketing to corporate dynamics. And, and I would add executive presence appreciative inquiry, conversational intelligence. The first developmental phase of leadership may be to select and bring together special people. And the next developmental step may be to synthesize and integrate that group to cohesively pursue a purpose and a vision that may be greater than each individually. Yeah, that, 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 that is, that is very insightful. Especially, I think it's very relevant to a lot of founders here. Uh, you know, they first have an idea, they start a company, then they need to bring a team together. So, like you said, you know, to, uh, this, this is very relevant to, you know, for the human, you know, bring the human capital into the company and then, you know, to excel at the performance. So thank you for sharing that. You know, as we say, like America is a, country, uh, you know, with high level of stress, I mean, especially in Silicon Valley, you know, it's a very uh, fast-paced uh, environment. And I know you have a lot of uh, uh, lot of leaders and clients that they have, all the high-performing leaders, but you know, how, what advice would you give to the leaders uh, nowadays to dealing, they are dealing with high level of stress? Well, that, that's a great question because it's a ubiquitous challenge. Um, and, and, and to reiterate, if you want to change or create a new habit, focus on this. The uh, Master States of Mind, the, the free webinar on my uh, website, I've developed a microsystem to, to manage stress. The Neural Conditioning Program is a performance microsystem to manage emotional triggers and to rewire planned ideal responses for peak performance. It addresses a sequence to get to optimum responses uh, at a behavioral and a brain level. It's a simple, proven, sort of mastery tactic system to help you effectively manage states of mind 
and strategically plan optimum performance. There's a, a single page chart there that if you print and, and work it, it can be extremely useful for any kind of stress, especially ones that are emotional triggered. And there's an example there of an executive woman who I worked with and the way that I first devised this has been refined a good deal since then, but my first hatching of this idea was in working with her, and there's an explanation of it that I won't uh, reiterate now, but that's, uh, you know, a, a beginning. Now, another performance macro system is, is the roadmap system, the seven-step process to deconstruct and understand personal performance and to systematically write new code for mind, brain, and behavior to optimize performance, including performing under pressure. You know, that that 90 to 95% of our operating system uh, is not conscious. So we can, though, gather information about the algorithms of attachment patterns, behavior patterns, emotional patterns, by looking at that and know how to address that if there's a systematic approach for that. Now, I, real, I realize the risk I'm taking here uh, in, in talking to some people from Silicon Valley and using these analogies, and I know I'm on thin ice already. <laughs> there was recently... A time, I love it. I love I, you talking about operating system algorithm. That's... <laughs> well, I did a I did a workshop for uh, for a, a group of cybersecurity experts for Fortune 500 companies, and my wife says, "Oh, well, good. Now this will be an idea to really test those computer metaphors and see if they fly." <laughs> I think one of those days you should actually do like a session here. Just yeah, there's a lot. We have like a, you know a lot of tech company here, and then. I think I I love what you how you use the analogy of you know operating system algorithm and it makes total sense uh, for people here. Um, well, here here's an example of that if if we have time uh, to look at what what actually is a practical application of the significant research on uh, deliberate practice and performance strategy. Success is often determined by internal state regulation under pressure. You think about a pro athlete or a, a multinational corporation CEO regulating states of mind and managing emotion in order to enter and sustain an optimum state for a specific endeavor is often the most important success strategy that you can employ, managing a state of mind to the task frames and initiates a successful engagement. In fact, a couple of uh, studies, uh, one from the Harvard Business Review and one in Scientific American Mind, that show that the primary success strategy of executives is self-reflection and managing states of mind. You know, a, a simple example, um, I worked with... Uh, uh, an Olympic athlete that noticed that she had a little bit of a choke in some major uh, competitions and she was about to go to the Olympics. What we noticed in sort of deconstructing that was for just a nanosecond right before she 
did her performance, she would look at her primary opponent and be distracted instantaneously, which was all it took to get out of state and to compromise her performance in that way. I actually have a question uh, regarding what you said. You mentioned about mental trigger a couple of times. Could you expand a little bit? What are the mental triggers people usually have? And an example, an example would be the, uh, the the executive woman I mentioned uh, from the, uh, uh, the the webinar. We we worked on a number of things for her executive functioning and success, and she was doing tremendously well. And then it came a time for, she was about to go home for Thanksgiving, and she said, can you help me for a little bit? I have a terrible time when I go home. I go home for one major holiday a year, this time it's Thanksgiving, and no matter how much I resolve to not fall into the same trap and to do the same thing, I inevitably get in an in arguments, in fights with my brother, sister, and parents. So what I recommended that she do, and, and she, she responded to an initial, are, are you aware of anything that triggers those particular changes for you? And she said, well, yeah, actually, the way my dad will kind of roll his eyes when I say something, or my mom will say something that will instantly trigger me being upset. And I said, what's the age of those conversations? She said, oh, I'm 13 or 14 again, all over. So what I explained to her is that those instantaneous emotional triggers create a state change so that that state of mind, when she was 13 or 14 and embroiled in those adolescent issues, that is a time capsule. And she re-enters that time capsule no amount of what she could do, and she had worked on this therapy and, and before uh, we ever started, and, and it really didn't help very much. Whatever you do, it, if you re-enter that time capsule, it's by definition not going to change. So the issue is to not enter the time capsule and to rewire your brain to have that cue mean something different. So what I suggested she do is to schedule an appointment with herself for maybe 30 minutes and write down all of the emotional triggers that she was aware of in that setting as an observer, not to let them trigger her, but to observe them. And then in the second column for each trigger, put what was her usual behavior or her usual response. And then in a second setting, to look at getting a way to be grounded and centered, to have a cue of focus and a physiology to instantly get grounded and centered and have a pre-planned ideal state that she would engage in. And every time there was an emotional trigger, instead of falling into that time capsule, to get grounded and centered and, and create an ideal response. Now, in the beginning, since this rewires the brain to have a cue mean something totally different, it takes some work. It, it's a hard work miracle. But after, and, and she had an unlimited number of timeouts, like even if she was, you know, with her family or at the, at the dinner table, she didn't have to engage in that old behavior or get in that state. She could go to the bathroom for a minute or take a walk. So 
what she reported after that was the, the best holiday she had ever had, and she continued to work on that until there was actually a rewiring. So one, once we do something in a repeated way, even in response to a certain cue, it rewires our brain. You know, for example, uh, uh, a pro athlete I work with, you have to reset after every play for for sports like football. For sports like basketball, it's a flow, but for something that's a segmented each play, after each play, because the challenge is when you do really well, you do really well on national television, or really bad with 80,000 people, there's a great deal of stimulus. So it's at least as challenging to do well when you really have a successful experience because that's as stimulating in a good way as negative isn't bad. So after every play, whether or not it was good, bad, or indifferent, he would say reset. And that instantly created that grounding and centering to stay in that performance zone. So success most often has to do with how someone manages an internal state under pressure-inducing circumstances. Those who develop a systematic pressure management strategy have optimum performance. And in situations where there's pressure, those who don't have those strategies tend to become more aroused or mentally rigid or more impulsive. And, you know, common experiences, as you know, in a pressure moment can include just simple things like uncertainty or exaggerated importance or being scrutinized. So there's a, a state shift. So this is important to manage to, to sustain, to achieve and sustain success. Does that make sense? It, it does. Uh, actually, I mean, I'm familiar with some of that and the neuro conditioning chart that uh, you talked about and all of that. That's, that's very powerful, life-changing stuff. So there are so many things that you talked about that are not things that someone as a leader can do overnight. What would you say is the role of coaching in supporting these types of transitions and becoming a better leader? Well, it's to really understand together collaboratively the performance story that's based on the needs and ideals of the person, the strategy and the goals of that person, and in their context, if it's an organization, and to create a way to collaboratively devise a story to achieve that step by step. So it, it's about creating a system of understanding someone's story, even the parts that may not be in conscious awareness, so that they can create an optimum story and revise whatever story they have to be a, a story of peak performance, because that's what we're creating moment by moment is our own story. So it's about collaboratively creating an optimum story for that person for their setting. That, that, that is excellent. Steve, our time is uh, coming up on us, and thank you for being so generous with your time today. Just as an exit question, this is something that I know you've done research on in your upcoming uh, project on peak performance uh, touches on. What would you say helps 
people sustain extreme success. There are a lot of really successful people already. The challenge that some of them have is how do you keep being as successful as you have become or as you've been? One, one thing about sustaining success, where one of, one of my favorite coaches of all time, Daryl Royal of University of Texas said, uh, you dance with the one who brought you. So you, you, you create a deliberate practice and successful performance and you continue developing in a way of deliberate practice to take in new information, to take in continued practice and development of expertise and, and never stop and continue assessment of that. And that's one of the major things that, that really determines, uh, someone being able to create a deliberate practice system to know how to have a plan and to stick to it. And, and you, you and I have talked about this before. You don't need to be motivated. All you need is a plan and stick to it. How many people have you heard say, well, I, I really want to lose weight. I really want to work out. I really want to have a better diet. You don't need to be motivated. You don't need to wait until you're motivated or wait until you're confident. Those are all epiphenomena. All you need is a plan and stick to it. But you need to continue to revise and assess that plan, see what's working and, not, and what's not. So you establish a well-defined, specific goal, not not just getting better, but a specific goal to engage in an optimum state of mind for that specific practice segment. And that's within an overarching purpose. And each practice is a challenge that's just beyond your comfort zone. Because that's that's a growth mindset and part of deliberate practice. And one one aspect may be uh, to visualize the successful completion of the specific goals. I'll, t- I'll tell you the story in just a moment. Continuing what works and what doesn't, and to get feedback from someone who's expert, including perhaps a mentor coach, to look at what you don't know how to ask. And, and an important aspect, a huge aspect of that that we haven't really talked about, is to develop an evolving, a transforming mental representation of that skill and that evolving identity. What, probably the most powerful force of the human psyche is that we always return to our identity. So if we make a behavioral change without transforming our identity, the model of how and who we are, then we'll revert back to the way it was before. So that evolving identity, that mental representation, needs to be a part of that deliberate practice. That is so powerful. Dave, this requires like a whole new podcast to talk about deliberate practice and peak performance. Thank you so much for your time today. Christine and I are really grateful. I learned a lot. Really. My privilege. Thank you. Super questions. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in next week for another inspiring discussion.